Uh, Let's uh, pray as we uh, prepare to hear from God's word this morning. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for uh, the time of year that we have um, to come and uh, celebrate your son, uh, to celebrate the birth of Jesus uh, and all that he has done for us. Uh, We pray that as we uh, hear from your word this morning that we would come away refreshed um, and having met Jesus anew um, and uh, more in love with our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This being the first week in uh, December, we're going to be starting a new series for Advent. Um, And this year for Advent, we're going to be working our way uh, through each of the verses of that carol that we just sang, O Come All Ye Faithful. Uh, We're going to look at each one verse each week. There's four Sundays between here and between now and uh, Christmas. Um, And each of, we're looking at what each verse of that hymn sort of contributes to the theology uh, of the song. What it, what it uh, reminds us of uh, in uh, biblical teaching about Jesus. Uh, The first verse, the unique contribution of that verse is uh, the line, uh, come and behold him born the king of angels. Uh, And as you see in your bulletins, that's the theme of this morning's sermon. Uh, If you uh, believe in, I guess, the basic tenets of Christianity... Um, you believe in God, uh, you believe in the existence of angels, um, you believe that Jesus is God, um, and so on, um, then I suppose it's probably no real surprise to say that Jesus is the king of angels. Um, I, uh, I don't think it's particularly uh, earth-shattering. Uh, in fact, as I was coming... Uh, to work on this sermon this week. I was uh, a bit sick earlier in the week and I came to this a bit late and I was trying to rush through it and um, getting a bit sort of frustrated with um, with the time I had, I guess, and I was kind of looking at this passage going, why on earth would I care that Jesus is born the King of Angels? What What possible significance could that have? Uh, obviously Jesus is the king of the angels. I know it, you know it. What, what difference does it make to our day-to-day, though? But the, the thing um, I want to, or I was reminded of, and I hope uh, I can remind you of this morning as well, is that uh, we're not here, of course, to try and uh, spout interesting facts in an, um, for their own sake. Uh, but we're here to meet with Jesus. We're here um, to get to know Jesus in his word. Um, and so even if uh, it seems like we're talking about trivial facts or, or arcane facts, um, it is uh, in reality we are meeting with uh, the most beautiful, um, glorious uh, Lord and God, um, and so we are um, 
we will be refreshed and enriched uh, as we learn about come and behold our Lord Jesus. Um, So join with me um, as we delve into Hebrews chapter 1. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews 1, uh, Hebrews 1 um, and we're going to, let me read verses 1 down to uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say... You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end." And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Uh, This passage introduces us to Jesus in three ways. 
Uh, the first in the first four verses of chapter 1 uh, is that he is the son, the direct line to God. I wonder if you've ever spoken to a Muslim about God. Uh, at uni I had a, a friend who was a Muslim um, and he was always ready to talk about God. Uh, it's quite refreshing if you talk with Muslims because uh, they are often very ready and willing to talk about God, unlike a lot of people, uh, a lot of Westerners. Um, and Muslims love to talk uh, about their God, about their religion. And they'll go to, often go to great lengths to try and show you that the God they serve is just like our God. He's transcendent. He's holy. He's majestic. He's loving. He's just. He's righteous. Uh, and he does much the same things as our God does too. He speaks to us. He hears prayers. Uh, some Muslims will say that they uh, are the same God. Mo- uh, uh, many Muslims are smarter than that. But they tell you that their God is just like our God. The only difference is that the, as Muslims understand it, there is no trinity. God is just God. But that's, that's the nonsensical bit of Christianity. We've, we've got all the good stuff, Muslims say. But if you push deeper and listen carefully, you find that there's another key difference, a key deficiency in the Muslim God which is that he isn't imminent. He speaks to humanity, but not directly. He gives his message to angels who give it to prophets who pass it down to the rest of us. He hears prayers, yes, but only at certain times, only in certain places, and only if you do it in certain ways. Uh, and of course, um, he expects everyone to uh, do everything in their power to visit certain monuments, certain uh, religious sites, uh, at least once in their life and as many times as they are able. Even after you do all of that, you still can't know for sure that you've pleased him, uh, that he'll listen to your prayers. Uh, that he'll accept you into heaven when you die. And the reason I bring this up is because Islam is what would be true. It's what would have what you would have if Hebrews one one to four wasn't true. Long ago, God at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Uh, In ancient times, God did speak to his people through the prophets. He did use intermediaries in that way. 
uh, very occasion, he did thunder from heaven, uh, as you uh, might remember from uh, the Sinai narrative. God thundered from the top of the Sinai mountain uh, and spoke to all of his people. Uh, but generally speaking, God very, very rarely uh, spoke directly to common people. Uh, even King David, who was himself a prophet, he wrote parts of the Old Testament and is uh, considered really the greatest Old Testament leader of God's people. We just read before, didn't we, how God spoke in a dream to the prophet Nathan, who was then to take the message to David. Of course, God didn't do this because he was aloof, uh, because he wanted to keep himself separate from humanity, as the Muslim God uh, does, Uh, but because God was gearing up for something better to come, something climactic, which would come in the last days, as Hebrews tells us. The last days when God would speak directly to us by his Son. Uh, The coming of the Lord Jesus is the single greatest development in salvation history. It's the climax of history, all that Jesus accomplished on earth. Uh, This is, of course, why we have a global celebration once a year um, to celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's uh, a momentous development, something completely uh, unlike what God has done before, that God speaks to us by his Son. Uh, Because the son is not just another prophet, is he? As verse 2 and 3 tell us, he has the very nature and essence of God. Uh, Verse 2b, his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. We see in this verse what God has done for the son. He appointed him as the heir of all things. That is, he made him the king over all the earth. Uh, We read from Psalm 2, verse uh, before. Uh, We read Psalm 2 where it says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The Son has inherited all of the earth. More than that, what we see in these verses, what God has done, through the Son, through whom also he created the world. The Son here is, as I said, not just another prophet. He is the creator. We've said so what God has done for the Son, what God does through the Son, what, and then uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us who the Son is and what he does in himself. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In and of himself, the Son displays the very nature of God and he sustains all of creation by the decree that he has spoken. Uh, but the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God, that the Son is not just the very nature and essence of God. He was also born as a human. He suffered and rose and has been exalted as a human. Uh, continuing verse 3. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There's a very surprising turn, I think, in that verse, uh, where the, the author says that he became superior to angels. Didn't we just read that the, that the Son is the very essence of God? How could he become superior to the angels when he's already of the nature of God? Uh, flick over a page to Hebrews 2 verse 9, which explains uh, this verse. Uh, quoting Psalm 8, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus for a little while was made lower than the angels and he is now crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death. Uh, in this sense, it's technically not true to say that Jesus was born the king of angels because when he was born, he made himself lower than the angels, at least as regards his humanity. But on, a, on account of the death that he died, the salvation that he won, he has been exalted in his humanity above the angels and is now seated at God's right hand. And in that sense, he became greater than the angels after having been previously lower than the angels for a little while. And so we have a God who knows, who has experienced what it means to be a human, to suffer, to stumble, to be slandered and scandalized, to be slighted and sacked and sinned against and scarred. He has experience of what it means to be human and now one who experienced that sits on the throne of heaven. As the king of heaven, he ordains history on our behalf. As one who has experienced what we experience, he hears our prayers. As one who knows what it means to be tempted he makes purification and cleanses our sins. God lives among us. A human sits at God's right hand 
because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the privilege of living in these last days, that is, the time since Jesus' birth, death, resurrection and ascension. We have a direct line to the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, If you're feeling stuck in the trenches, burdened by by your sins or the sins of others against you, then come and behold the Son of God who suffered as you do, has made purification for your sins and now sits enthroned in heaven to hear your prayers, to sovereignly ordain the things of earth and to bear you up to sit with him on his throne. Now we've used the title the Son of God quite a lot so far, without actually defining what it means. Uh, And the author of Hebrews, I think, notices that when he says, when he talks about the name he has inherited. Because from then on, in in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews goes out of his way and uses the Old Testament to explain what he means by the Son. The name he inherited, that is the, the son, the name of the son, which is more excellent than angels. He explains the name and then explains why it is more excellent than the angels. Um, and in so doing, he gives us a proper introduction to the son, the king of angels. This is the second point this morning. Uh, Verse 5, then, he introduces us to the name of the Son. Uh, Psalm 2, which we read this morning, and Psalm 7, which inspired it, speak of the Messiah as God's Son, the Davidic King as God's Son. Uh, We often, uh, through our 2,000 years of church history, Uh, we associate the title, the Son of God, as a divine title. And as we shall see, uh, there is good reason why uh, the Son of God is a divine title. But in ancient times, uh, the title, the Son of God, was primarily associated with kingship, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, As I said, in Hebrew, in Psalm 2, it talks about, you are my son. The decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The decree then means that Jesus, or the the Davidic king, uh, would be the king over all the earth. Uh, And the reason for this is, of course, that in ancient times, uh, it was quite custom, customary for a father to, or for a son to take up the work of his father. Now, some of you still um, even know that practice, that in farms, often it's the son who takes over the, the work from the father. 
And in, in the same way, God is the king over all the earth. And so if God calls uh, David and David's sons to be his son, that means then that David also is taking on that responsibility, that family business, if you like, of ruling all of the earth. Uh, And that's exactly the reason why then in Psalm 2, the decree that you are my son is then taken as, therefore, this son is the king over all the earth. At this this ancient level then, this Old Testament level, the, the title the Son of God is primarily a messianic title for God's chosen king. But as I said, we have good reason for taking it as a divine title as well. Uh, and the author of Hebrews makes that very clear in the rest of the chapter. Uh, he says in verse 6, Uh, points to how when God called the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. In other words, all of creation is called to worship the Son. Even the angels are subjected to him. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, he contrasts the angels and the Son, showing how the angels are uh, uh, winds and flames of fire, almost like uh, he says they're, they're ghosts. Uh, but the sun has eternal substance. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, verses 8 and 9 quote from Psalm 45. Uh, psalm 45 is a royal psalm a psalm about the king, uh, probably sung at a royal wedding or a coronation. Uh, and the psalm extols the king's majesty uh, and the, the justice of his rule. In that psalm, the, the king is, call, is addressed as God, as you see. Uh, because of the greatness of his majesty, the uh, stability of his throne, the justice, the, the goodness of his just rule. Um, and of course, if you are singing this as of a human king, then it's obviously a uh, sort of exaggeration. But the author of Hebrews rightly notes that because the king uh, would eventually be an eternal perfect king that God promised, then when it is fully fulfilled, the throne of David would be filled by God himself, by a divine figure who takes the throne as the son of God. A king who is God and yet is anointed by God. Uh, the final verses there tend to, or sorry, no, not the final verses, but verses 10 to 12 are a quote from Psalm 102. Uh, if you flick back to Psalm 102, you'd uh, be a bit surprised that I, th- I think that uh, that's taken as a prophecy of the king. 
uh, when it seems that all of these things are ascribed to God himself. Uh, But in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, these final verses of Psalm 102 are addressed to the king. God uh, replies to the king in his affliction, reminding him that that God has promised uh, to establish his throne forever. And so the king is pictured as eternally sovereign over all creation. The creator, the consummator, who stands at the end of history and wraps up the heavens like a cloak. And of course we know that there is such a king. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, says Jesus in Revelation 22 verse 13. He laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and he will wrap up the heavens like a cloak in the end and he will stand, his years will have no end and he will reign forever. Uh, Verses 13 and 14 finally close by uh, contrasting the angels and the sun by what they do now. The sun has been called to sit at God's right hand, having accomplished all that he set out to do. He sits enthroned while the angels are sent out to serve. And they serve us who are to be saved those who are to inherit salvation. So we've seen the Son uh, as the direct line to God and the Son as the King of Angels. And thirdly, in chapter 2, the thought is concluded uh, as and the and applied to us as the author of Hebrews introduces us to the Son, the Lord of your life. Uh, Remember Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And so we read in chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If God has now spoken to us by his Son, and since this is so much greater than the way that he spoke to his people in the past by his prophets, the author of Hebrews says we have all the more reason and requirement to listen to it. Of course, saying that the Son is greater does nothing to denigrate the message that came before. The author of Hebrews reminds us that the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Every every transgression or disobedience received a just distribution. The message that had been previously declared by the prophets, mediated to them by the angels, uh, and in various other ways, that message 
was true. There was no error in it. It was authoritative. There was no escape for those who disobeyed. Uh, Think in the Old Testament about how God dealt with those who rejected his word. Uh, Those who rejected the message of Moses were swallowed up by the earth. Those who resisted the message of Elijah were slaughtered after God rained down fire on Mount Carmel. The entire nation of Israel, when they refused to repent of their idolatry, were carried off into exile for 70 years. And of course, all who rejected the message of God were damned in hell and judged by God. The word of the Old Testament prophets was reliable and authoritative. How much more so the message of the divine son, God himself speaking to us. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It was declared at first by the Lord, directly from the Son, directly from God himself. And it was attested to us by those who heard. As you know, we have the message of the eyewitnesses revealed to us in the Bible. And in case we should have reason to doubt that, God has put his seal of approval by demonstrating to us, uh, God has demonstrated to us his seal of approval in miraculous ways and by the, uh, by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How can we reject or neglect such a great salvation revealed directly to us by God himself? And yet we do. Or at least many do. Um, I can think of two reasons why people reject and neglect the message. The first is that we like to serve ourselves in our sin. Uh, We seek to find pleasure apart from God. Uh, In our sin, we so often think that God's rules are constrictive. And in a sense, that's true. God, God does put constraints on our lives. Um, And we saw in 1 John a few weeks ago that those constraints are not burdensome for those who love him. But there are things that God tells us not to do. Harmful things, not good things. But in our sin we seek to find pleasure apart from what God has said. 
We seek to serve ourselves because we have no desire to serve him. Uh, Likewise, we want to save ourselves. Uh, Perhaps we recognize that God does give us good things, that God's ways are best, but we try to achieve them in our own strength. We want to prove ourselves to God. We want the kudos of being able to say, I did that, I turned my life around, I turned my neighbours and friends and society around. We seek to serve ourselves or we seek to save ourselves. Even as Christians, we try and find various ways of doing that. But both of those are fruitless, the author of Hebrews reminds us. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Uh, I think of trying to go against God's law as being like trying to uh, stretch a rubber band as far as you can. Uh, God's word being like a rubber band enclosing what is right, like a boundary. And you can walk out and push those boundaries and stretch it and pull it and make your own shape out of it. But the further you pull, the more it's going to hurt when it inevitably springs back on you. Rejecting God's ways will will come back to sting you. Uh, Likewise, trying to find the good things of God, trying to achieve or do what God requires without coming to him uh, for his salvation is like trying to hydrate with alcohol. It seems like it should work. You, you, you drink a, a beer and it uh, wets your throat. You're taking on fluids. It's mostly water. What harm can it do? Surely it'll hydrate you, right? But that's the opposite of what it does. When you drink lots of alcohol, you get a headache. Why? Because you're dehydrating yourself. Trying to seek the good things about of God without him is equally counterproductive. How shall we escape if we reject such a great salvation? And it is a great salvation. Uh, we've heard all morning how great our Saviour is, how good it is to know him, about how he makes purification for our sins, how he brings us to God. Uh, We've heard how he was God and became man to suffer and live as one of us, to die for us, to save us, to reign as one of us at God's right hand. We've heard how he, he is the son of God, the great king over all, the eternal divine king far above angels and humans alike. The king who sends his angels and ordains history to serve and to help us and to glorify himself. What a great salvation. And so Jesus has the rightful claim on your life as Lord of all. There is no good reason to reject his call and every good reason to submit yourself to it. So come. All of you, faithful, joyful, triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. 
Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for uh, the good salvation that you've given to us. Uh, the way that you have opened up the, wo- or, uh, the way of salvation by sending your Son uh, and speaking to us directly in these last days. Uh, we pray that we would listen and worship and be in awe of your Son, whom you appointed heir of all things. In his name we pray. Amen.